Welcome to Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. My guest today, Juliette Cayenne, is a scholar and practitioner of security studies. She's a former assistant secretary of Homeland Security, Harvard professor, and once ran for governor of Massachusetts. Juliet Kayam is also, as of this week, a podcaster. Her new podcast, called Security Mom, was produced by arguably one of the best public radio stations in the country, WGBH Boston, and I would encourage all of you to go check it out on iTunes. Uh, We have a great conversation. We kick off with a discussion about her new podcast and then pivot to a longer conversation about Juliet's very interesting life and career. So before I start the show, and while I have your attention, I just wanted to say thank you all for listening. The show has been growing pretty exponentially these last couple of months, and I think that's largely due to the fact that you guys are out there spreading the word about this podcast to your friends and colleagues in the foreign policy nerd community. So I just want to thank you for that. Uh, You know, I do this show for you, and it's really gratifying to see that it's reaching so many people at this point. So if you have any recommendations of people you want me to interview, topics you want me to cover, or you just want to get in touch with me for any reason, please send me an email via globaldispatchespodcast.com. Not only do I read them all, but I will absolutely follow up on your recommendations. And here is my conversation with Juliet Kayem. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. You know, security mom to me like seems to imply like a low information voter who's like right. animated by sort of irrational fears of terrorism. But you seem to have embraced. I wanted that term. to reclaim. Yeah, I did, and I wanted to reclaim the term. The uh, people who follow various elections, security mom describes it demographic of women who are exactly exactly that sort of uh, they, they tend to be white suburbanites um, who um, who are mothers um, who elevate uh, the threats in their mind and in their communities much greater than they actually are so they perceive Isis as uh, much scarier than it actually is to an individual in a suburb uh, and uh, they are a voting demographic uh, that describes at various points a move of independent and democratic women to the Republican Party in the U.S. because it's viewed, the Republicans are for some reason viewed as sort of stronger, tougher, more protective on security issues. Um, And I always hated the term, I mean, for one is, um, I think every mom's a security mom in the sense that, and every dad's a security dad, I mean, in the sense that uh, uh, we, um, our own safety and security for our children and our homes and our neighborhoods is of paramount importance. Uh, but also this caricature of this, you know, scared woman in the suburbs, so afraid of ISIS was just a image that I couldn't stand and not, not um, uh, reflective of the women I knew, but certainly the community in Homeland Security that I knew and know. Um, but also that she's, she, this idea of the security mom is the creation of 
um, you know, low information and that maybe what I can do given both my professional background and of course the fact that I too am a mom, uh, begin to just talk about this stuff in a rational, down to earth, non-terrifying way and, you know, let people in. So I thought your first episode kind of, uh, when you interviewed the former commissioner yeah. of the Boston police, uh, who was, you know, the, the, the face of the Boston response during the marathon bombing was, was particularly interesting, kind of gave like an inside view of what was happening on that day. Right. What made right. you want to kick off with that? With that? Well, I mean, for one here, I live in Boston, I live in Cambridge and, uh, the Sirenef brothers, you know, obviously, uh, they they went to my kids' school. They uh, live lived about four blocks from where I live, and so for on a personal level, um, you know, here was an incident, a terrorist attack, uh, just sort of down the street uh, from me. I knew the Boston Marathon very well. I had been. Governor Patrick's Homeland Security Advisor, so had uh, been involved with the security assessments and security planning for the Boston Marathon. And obviously, just given the trial and Jahar, the younger brothers, you know, the guilty verdict against him, and we're sort of uh, relatively soon there'll be the sentencing hearing, uh, you know, it's very, very raw and emotional for this city. And I thought, well, you know, we tend to we, you know, I guess I put it different. Like people just don't know what happens in those situations. Like, what are the decisions being made by our public safety and our political apparatus? What choices are they confronted with? Where, where were they when it happened? You know, we have this idea that everyone's just sitting there waiting for the bad thing to happen. No, Ed Davis in this case was um, several minutes away from the finish line. And I just thought maybe just talking to him, he's a friend. Um, about what happened over the course that we could just sort of illustrate both how the apparatus works, but also, you know, maybe why sometimes it's imperfect, uh, as we've now seen with some assessments criticizing the response. Um, so one part of the interview that, that struck me the most was your question about whether or not he supports the death penalty against yeah. uh, Tsarnev. Um, so you know, you know, Boston, you know, he said, you know, he's thankful that he lives in, in a state where the death penalty is not an option, but this is obviously is a federal case. So that's on the table. And he said that, you know, he's usually against it, but, uh, you know, he'd make an exception this time around. Um, yeah. Is that like the prevailing feeling Isn't in it Boston it right now? You know, it's so interesting. I mean, that was one of those, you know, I sort of asked him off the cuff. I wasn't really thinking his answer would be what it was. Um, and so upon re-listening to it, it, it was jarring. Look, I mean, I only can go by the polling, which is still in Massachusetts. We're a very progressive state. Uh, most people still oppose the death penalty, even against Shahar, um, except, you know, look, there's a pool of jurors that sat and found him guilty and they all are you know, death eligible, so to speak. They would they would impose the death penalty. I am someone who has always been against the death penalty and remains so even in hard or even in easy cases, I guess, like this. And I think for Ed, if I had a chance to do a follow up, you know, I think that the impact of that week uh, and uh, and the impact on the victims uh, makes him you know, sort of grant this exception, uh, which I do think that that's a, uh, that is a sentiment that you hear. Um, so 
I, I look forward to, to uh, listening to more episodes for sure. Right. Um, Thank but you. I want to know if we could. Yeah, no, it was great. It was really great. Like very well produced. Like I'm, I'm jealous of your production <laughs> uh, quality. It's That's something, the producer. I oh know. Oh my gosh! It's this is this is what what kills me about this podcast. I have great and interesting people like you on, and like there's just like a minor amount of sound polishing I could do if I knew how to do it, but I don't. Right, so, exactly. Uh, it doesn't seem to bother the audience. I think it bothers me more than than everyone else. Um, so I, you know, uh, I've sort of, I've, I've, you've been in my orbit for a while. I've, I've followed okay. your work and, and, uh, for a while, particularly related to, to terrorism issues. But yeah. so I was you know, kind of curious to, to learn more uh, about you. Are you from Boston? Is that where you grew no, up? No, I'm from California. I grew up a beach volleyball player, uh, in, in Los Angeles. Um, uh, and I don't know, my, my life took a, a, a turn somewhere. I, I ended up uh, coming to the East Coast to go to Harvard for college and then law school. And, um, you know, like all good stories, met a guy and ended up uh, staying here. And um, and my, my life, you know, just, you know, some people have very linear careers. I've gotten more used to the uh, the nonlinear aspects, uh, you know, it's just I have a very nonlinear career that ebbs and flows depending on uh, the world out there. And also I have three kids, um, but uh, really got very involved with terrorism and counterterrorism when I was at the Justice Department. I was a lawyer by training mm -hmm. and so came into it through the civil rights side. So was much more critical of it than uh, when I entered it, you know, sort of later on in my life after 9-11. So growing up in, in California, uh, I mean, were, are your family, your parents lawyers? Yeah, my parents are there, a, a nice Lebanese immigrant family. Uh, okay. um, and my mom was born in Lebanon. My, she met my dad uh, uh, when they were both at UCLA. So large Lebanese immigrant family. Did they uh, leave before the, the war? Before yes, 75? well before, yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, and... Uh, settled in in Westwood, which is just on the like the shadows of UCLA, and uh, and it was great. I mean, it was a very very different existence than now. My husband always jokes that, and he always tells the kids that. Uh, he says, your mother is in a bad mood every February, like literally just February, New England, just I'm in a bad mood. You know, I have, have not adopted to the uh, New England weather yet. But um, my family's still there, very large Lebanese Christian family. And my husband's family is Jewish. So we have an interfaith marriage and, and raising the kids Jewish. So, uh, you know, sort of reflect the diversity of, 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 uh, of so much of America now. Um, so, uh, were, you, were your uh, parents lawyers as well? Did they? Did they yeah, my like oh, my dad was a lawyer, but never practiced. He was kind of like me. I mean, practiced for a few years, like mm -hmm. him. Uh, and he's um, uh, ended up sort of more in, in international uh, sort of business and uh, projects. Then got into more biotech. Uh, and my brother is a big uh, biotech businessman has a PhD from Caltech. And so they've been very successful in that field. Uh, but our fields never sort of overlap. They're not, um, they're not so much in the security. They're, they're more in, um, uh, medicines and, and other, um, uh, uh, drugs and other things that will, will help people in a variety of ways. And so they're there. My mother was a stay at home mom and I have a sister who's three years older. She's an art historian and my brother is a scientist. So we all sort of, uh, have very different careers, which, uh, maybe may make it easier, but my sister, you know, has the, she works at Christie's auction house and sort of has the, um, 
I think the most beautiful career. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> gets to look at art all day. She gets to work, look at art all day, and be around very artistic people. I know. I I call her I call her career her beautiful career and my career my disastrous career, just given our fields, you know. Um, and uh, and she lives in New York, uh, so we're both on the East Coast. And so you know, and then. Um, uh, uh, went to law school here. So after college, lived in Africa, South Africa for a year, um, and then came when, back. When were you in South Africa? So I was 91 to 92. So, so that was right the, at the, the, the Cadessa years. Yeah, you, yeah. exactly. That, that uh, Mandela was released and, um, but they had not set up the constitutional structure. So remember it was a very, very, you know, I know everything's always violent, but it was a very violent time because um, the zoo. There was a lot of the infighting with the Zulus. A lot of massacres. I went down there um, on a fellowship to teach at the University of Western Cape. That was the ANC-based uh, university uh, right outside of uh, Cape Town. Ended up doing some writing um, and writing what were you and teaching in English and writing and stuff for students. Um, and it was just really exciting. But ended up, you know, sort of, I've always had media as sort of part of my career. And uh, even then ended up doing some stringing for the LA Times and, um, and uh, some freelancing. So, uh, you know, had a piece in the New Republic. And, and uh, uh, so that's always, so the writing has always been part of it. But it was a glorious year and really nice. I mean, I think my only regret is that I came back only after a year to go to Harvard Law School. On the other hand, that's when David and I started dating. So mm -hmm. I guess well, you, uh, you, missed, you, uh, you know, you missed the inauguration and the election. I, I did. I did. Yes. Right. I mean, we, I left, um, what June of 92 mm -hmm. and then started law school in, in August and have been back several times, uh, for work, um, for some research, uh, and uh, we're anticipating taking the kids actually next year finally because they're sort of old enough. Oh, um, yeah. So, uh, so what made you want to go to go to law school? And when I guess when did these issues start to start to like so animate I, like, you? Like like I said, you know, I, I just you know I sort of go with the flow. You know, some some people have careers. My career has just sort of happened. But I was a civil rights attorney. I went to law school. Absolutely hated law school. I have to tell you, my husband is, was. Until recently, he's now a judge, a Harvard law professor, so that always cracks me up because I absolutely hated law school. Um, and I spent most of my time sort of away from the classroom doing prison legal assistance work, um, death penalty appeals work, uh, clinicals, what they call in law school, and, um, you know, had a real and still do a very strong progressive civil rights bent. And so I was very lucky. It was just a, it just turned out that I got a job in in a very, very um, small program called the Honors Program through the Justice Department that lets in maybe 10 or 12 uh, new lawyers um, right after law school into the Justice Department as trial attorneys. And I got picked by the Civil Rights Division. So it was like a dream come true. I was there um, when Deval Patrick, who will be relevant in my life throughout uh, um, and you know, later became the governor of Massachusetts, mm -hmm. Uh, when he was assistant attorney general, and I litigated. I mean, you know, I was, you know, what were in some the of your cases? Room. Was this during the, the Clinton administration? It was during the Clinton administration. So I was involved with the VMI and Citadel cases. Those are cases. What are that, those? Can you describe um, those are, yeah, that, so um, these are, uh, one was called the Virginia Military Institute and the other is the Citadel from South Carolina. These are essentially, or they were, are essentially public institutions uh, funded by um, 
the taxpayers of Virginia or South Carolina, um, but not part of the formal, you know, uh, state college system. They are legacy military schools. And at the time, they were all male. Um, and so it seemed a very clear violation of Title IX and any other uh, equal protection rules um, to um, uh, that this that that individual plaintiffs with the help of the Justice Department brought against just you know really historic old school um, bastions of the old South military institutions very very controversial I mean uh, as a as a legal argument it doesn't seem that difficult to argue that they are essentially public institutions that were denying women access uh, but those were very controversial cases and hard, you know, I've, I've learned throughout my career, even when people now talk about terrorism and national security, you know, I always say you have to take the long view, like things aren't going to get cured tomorrow in the Middle East, or, you know, climate change is not going to get cured in a day, or, um, and I believe that's true, or believe that was true even then, um, we, Shannon Faulkner was the plaintiff um, in the Citadel case, uh, many people will remember who are over the age of 40, uh, that uh, Shannon uh, we won the case in the Supreme Court, um, uh, and um, uh, Shannon uh, entered uh, the institution and only lasted three weeks. That the, the both the physical and I think mental stress of being the sole woman. But you know, you take the long view, and I think both of those schools are something like fifteen or twenty percent women now, and um, the South still stands. South Carolina still stands, and um, and I love those cases. I, I brought the federal government's first peer-on-peer uh, -peer complaint um, against did you, a... Sorry, did, were you yeah. litigating at the Supreme Court in that case? No, 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 because I was a trial attorney, so okay. these cases are constantly going up and down. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, the Solicitor General the argues them before the Supreme Court. Um, then they get remanded for fact-finding, depositions. So mm -hmm. we were on the, the more tactical but, end but of But it originated cases. in the office of the Civil Rights Division. Yeah. That's exactly right. Uh, with with the with the plaintiff's complaint, um, and you know, I brought a case in California. These are uh, which was the federal government's first peer on peer complaint. It actually settled, so it never became a case. What does that mean? Um, it, it's what we call bullying um, now. It the question, the legal question at the time was, um, um, does Title VI, which is our federal funding statute, um, and equal protection. Uh, for federal funding, meaning that anyone who gets federal funding has to provide equal, equal protection of the laws. Uh, does it protect um, uh, girls in this case from uh, sexual abuse by or harassment by boys? Because generally we used to think of harassment as um, or sexual misconduct as the principal flirting with the girls or sexually harassing um, girls. And the question was in this case was, you know, this football team um, was sexually harassing the cheerleaders, making it a hostile environment. Some of the girls withdrew from school and they felt like the school wasn't helping them. And so they came to us and said, they came to me and said, you know, we think there's a federal case here that the school district has to be held responsible for the conduct of uh, the kids. And um, it was novel at the time. It's done all the time now. And uh, it, it was my easiest case. It took one letter. We actually just wrote a letter to the school district saying we have strong reason to believe that you're in violation. And uh, and everything got fixed after that. They they knew that they were in trouble and they um, uh, 
Uh, they they fix things for the girls. The, the, the so, power of a lawyer's letter. I know exactly, especially one that says yeah, United States on it at the top. But uh, so, uh, how so long were, were you in in, in the uh, civil rights division? So I was there five years. I had different roles. I was a trial attorney, and then I ended up being a counselor to the assistant attorney general. And then my life. You know, as I say, nothing's ever linear. Um, my life took an interesting turn at that time, and now it's 98, 99, uh, Attorney General Janet Reno, who I got to know because, you know, my cases were high profile, so I got to know her a little bit better and certainly her staff. Um, many people will remember in those days, pre-9-11, there were still a series of counterterrorism or anti-terrorism cases. In fact, one of the criticisms of the Clinton administration and terrorism is right. We, we we viewed everything as a law enforcement issue, but there was a series of cases that were called the secret evidence cases. These were cases that, um, based on the immigration status of the defendant, defendant, they could be held on secret evidence, evidence that didn't need to be disclosed to them. Um, and even in the telling of it, you, you can tell, you can guess how abused it was even by our own government. Um, so there were about 12 or 13 guys being held on secret evidence, all of them in um, uh, a um, temporary immigration status. So uh, the um, uh, and all of them were Arab and all of them were Muslim. And the attorney general just felt very uncomfortable with these cases. I mean, here she is a long, long term prosecutor. She likes, you know, the adversary process. She believes in the fourth and Fifth Amendment, you know, the right to know the charges against you. And so she asked for a review of the secret evidence cases, which were essentially civil rights, civil liberties cases, abuse cases. And um, she were, 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 um, these, were these men being held like in connection with like the, the first World Trade Center bombing or, or anything? Oh, like um, that? so the law came. No, it was just general terrorism. The law that created the secret evidence cases actually came out of the Oklahoma City bombings. Uh, and Congress, even though that was white supremacy, Congress put a provision in that law that said um, uh, immigrants of a certain status, and I'm forgetting the exact status, um, if there's allegations of that they are terrorists, and I think all of these guys were Hamas at the time, this was not Al-Qaeda, uh, um, uh, could be held. And uh, the Attorney General... Um, just, you know, felt that uh, even though we had the right to do it, she she wanted independent eyes over uh, the evidence. And so she started and asked me to join a secret evidence review process. So this was really the first time I really entered the national security world and was dealing with the FBI. And there was no national security division at the Justice Department at the time. But, um, you know, the terrorism apparatus was quite nascent at that stage. And, you know, this evidence was, in most cases, very weak. And um, I remember the most famous case was a case in which the secret evidence, in quotes, was uh, statements by uh, one of the detainees' ex-wives, uh, and they were in a custody battle. So you can imagine she easily says he's a member of Hamas um, just to win custody of the child. So we ended up um, opening up all that evidence, uh, most of the judges were not happy uh, with uh, what these guys were being detained on. And it was really the first time that I, yeah, that one could describe. Well, did that make me. you like enemies inside the FBI or It or really did, but division? you know, I'm, it did. I mean, that that is the irony of my life that, that uh, I have, you know, people, um, my public persona is so identified with something that I entered uh, as an adversary, but the truth is, is, is um, you know, 
I don't want to say I'm always an adversary, but I think I'm probably more skeptical than most. I like to question a lot. I'm not uh, because I've never been in operations. You know, I've never been a cop or a firefighter. I think I can take a step back and um, assess and uh, what's going on. But it is true that that my first entry was as the uh, reviewer and adversary. Uh, but the world was so, that world was so small then that even um, uh, even in that role, I became, you know, in the small group of terrorism and counterterrorism people, uh, uh, at least known because it was so small. Um, so were you a political appointee at that time? I mean, did you have to leave office when, uh, no, uh, I, um, okay. I was, I came in the honors program is career and that's the beauty of it. I just happened to become friendly with uh, Reno. She had me in her 8.30 morning meetings every morning. We called them the get back meetings because um, uh, no one would ever have the answer, you know, at 8.30 in the morning. So she would say, we would always answer and say, we'll get back to you. So we called them the get back meetings. Uh, and um, and What's I would- she up to these days? You, you know, know she had um, Parkinson's at the end of her tenure as attorney uh, general. Yeah. And so she's had a I'm a slow decline. I've been in touch with her occasionally, but um, uh, makes no very, very rare public appearances. And um, um, and so she um, uh, um, and so I was career. I ended up leaving before the end of the Clinton administration uh, because David, uh, who was also at the Justice Department, that's my husband. Um, he had clerked for Justice Stevens, uh, was working at the Office of Legal Counsel. He got a teaching job at Harvard Law School. So we ended up leaving and coming back to Boston in 1999, right before the, the big election. And um, so what, what, would, what kind of job did you take up there? Oh, I was unemployed and unhappy. Uh, because I had left this big job at the Justice Department, uh, and um, uh, I got a dog. Uh, we had no kids at the time, uh, and I took a. And you have to remember, so I'm five years out of law school. So a lot of my friends are making partner. I took a fifteen hundred dollar a month job um, as a fellow at the Kennedy School in what they called their domestic preparedness program. Um, we call it Homeland Security now, but um, a program that was focused on. Um, homeland threats, and so they actually had a you know a very small program. Most people in national security weren't interested in terrorism, and I was doing research and some writing, uh, but also got appointed because of my positions um, uh, in the Justice Department. Got appointed to the National Commission on Terrorism, which was one of several pre nine eleven commissions uh, that essentially were warning the U.S. that we were unprepared for. Uh, the growing threat. I served on that. These commissions are not full-time jobs. You're mm-hmm. appointed to them. And I went down to see to, to DC four or six times. Uh, but that was uh, what was called also the Bremer Commission. That was El Paul Ambassador Bremer, who would run the um, coalition provisional administration after the Iraq war. Uh, yeah. And so um, it was five Republicans, five Democrats. I was appointed by Gephardt, who was, I think he was, I think we were in the minority then, minority uh, leader in the House. Uh, and so had these sort of hodgepodge, you know, I was teaching, I was, um, uh, were you you up there in Boston when, when nine 11 happened? Yeah. And then, so I had our, we had, then I was pregnant. So we had our first baby August 3rd, 2001 and on, and you know, it was a nice life and I, you know, it seemed all like, you know, this was a neat field and I stick to this for a little bit and then see what happened. And then obviously, um, nine 11 happened. I was on a train to, 
um, New York the morning of. And so that was very traumatic because remember, there's just, it's, there's just no protocols. No one was anticipating anything. So the train is like going into New York and I'm here with a five week old. My parents happened to be in New York. My sister was there. Um, and I just needed to get out of the house. So it just turned out that Tuesday morning, I just planned on going to New York and, um, uh, ended up advising everyone on the train to get off the train because Amtrak was, didn't have any protocol. So they were still moving the train. So it was one of the first times that I, um, so you wait, you, here you are holding a, a yes, an infant and, I stand- and you're sort of saying, Hey, I'm a member of this commission. You yeah. should listen to me. Yeah. Uh, let's yeah, get I mean, off. A, yeah. It was a little bit like, um, you where know, did you get I, off? Uh, in New Haven. That's how far we went. So, oh, so we were on the train. Um, David called me about the second hit cause I'd heard about the first plane. Um, and even I, even in this, in the field, you know, cause the first reports and there's no Twitter and there's no pictures, you know, you think, Oh, a little dinky plane hit the world trade center. Um, uh, I was on the train already and I stayed on the train, even though it was stopping at all the places it normally stops. And then I was getting a lot of media calls because I had, you know, done some media and terrorism. Most people didn't know, most reporters didn't know anyone in counterterrorism. You know, my role at the Kennedy school, um, you know, also had them finding me. Um, and finally we're, we're heading towards new Haven and I just sort of come to, and I said, um, a, a young woman asked me, what should I do? It sounds like, you know, you know, you know, something because she overheard me talking and people just wanted advice. Maybe it's a little bit like the podcast, you know? So I just stood up on a chair. I said, look, I don't know what is going on with this train, but I just, I really think everyone should get off. It's just not a city we want to be in. And it's probably not even, even if it is over, I mean, it's it was not a good decision. Fair. People were, yeah. you know, people would, would get stuck in the city. I, I, you know, obviously it was, it was, yeah. it was a wise, it was a wise decision. I mean, I remember like talking about like the, like the, the paucity of sort of experts on terrorism yeah. compared to the overabundance of so-called experts on terrorism we have today. I mean, I remember yeah, like no. watching CNN on, on 9-11 and like they're interviewing Tom Clancy, like he was some expert. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was it was there's very few of us and then of course very few women. I mean, I think I'm um you know, still one of the very few uh women on I still have a contract with CNN. Um and uh I'll be honest, very few people that talk like me. You know, I just I don't you know, some of these guys seem to get paid to sort of terrify everyone. I just don't think that's a helpful way to describe things. And um and you know, had a perch of which I could at least uh, describe what was going on. I mean, I, you, our, our knowledge was so rudimentary at that time. I was getting phone calls from like top reporters saying like, you know, who is this bin Laden guy we keep hearing about? And, you know, you just realize like we knew nothing or most of the population knew nothing. So I guess at that moment, this career that I didn't know, you know, how it was going to unfold and, you know, seemed, you know, sort of, okay, interesting. Cause I was, you know, doing interesting things, you know, then you sort of realize, wow, it's become relevant for just given this absolute so, tragedy. So how did that, that relevancy like manifest itself uh, in terms of like what you were doing next in your, in your career? Like, So, you know, I mean, so, you know, my career, you know, was, was here because of David and the, and then ultimately we had two more kids and I always, I loved the Kennedy school. It was a nice uh, place. I love teaching. Um, you keep young by having students around. Also, for someone like me, it's a way to help keep up to date and think through your thoughts. 
Uh, and um, but really, essentially, those years, 2001 to 2006, I was a frequent critic of the administration. I was, uh, you know, I was on various panels. I was a strong critic of the Iraq War. Um, uh, leading up to it, uh, you know, remember one dinner with Senator Kennedy in which, um, you know, he invited four people he had seen on TV, sort of critical of the war as he was leading up to his vote um, and uh, advising him why it was the right thing and um, to vote against the war and sort of had this sort of outsider slash insider because, you know, obviously I, I knew a lot of the key players role for those um, years uh, and had a child in 2001, 2003, and 2005. And so it was, um, uh, and, and sort of felt, you know, the, the, the stresses like everyone else did of those really crazy years. So how did you uh, feel about the decision to create the Department of Homeland Security? So I don't mean, it's such a good question. I should look back. I don't know what I said at the time. I mean, I, I can't, you know, by the time I entered it, and I then I did a stint in state service before I, I came to federal government, um, it sort of was, so you didn't really, you know, sort of question whether it was going to exist or not. It was like a mass reorganization of the national security establishment. Yeah, and I think um, uh, my guess is I probably thought it was unnecessary. Uh, if I, I should probably look back, you're catching me in my I don't know mode, but um, I was not into you know, those big gestures. And so me being critical of the department probably would have been consistent with that. I've come to believe, obviously, because I was a beast of it as well, and, and an assistant secretary there, that um, like the Department of Energy, like the Department of Defense, you know, it might take several decades. Uh, but DHS seems to be figuring out its lanes um, and, uh, and, and trying to focus solely on those lanes rather than bumping up against every other federal agency. So did, did Janet Napolitano at one point just uh, call you up and, and ask you to, uh, to join? Well, I had, so I had, um, so in 2006, Deval Patrick becomes governor, which was very unexpected. No, you know, he was sort of a, um, uh, a, uh, uh, a surprise for many people. And I, we were very supportive of him. And each governor at that stage needed a Homeland Security Advisor. Those are people that essentially are the um, secretaries of Homeland Security. And that's a major apparatus. Um, it's public safety agencies. It's overseeing the National Guard. A couple, you know, I think 80 or 100 million dollars of safety and security money were coming into the state. So I was in charge of setting programs and policies um, and then obviously when bad things happen, you know, being uh, um, the link between the operational agencies and, of course, the, the governor. Um, and so I knew the apparatus. I was known to the department uh, and uh, was not involved with the campaign. And if anything, I think I probably gave more to Hillary Clinton than to Barack Obama and just thought, oh, this is great. He's president, but did not think much of it or he's going to be president and then uh, both David and I were called simultaneously uh, while we were in a movie theater watching High School Musical 3 uh, by what were called the transition teams, which was, you know, this he wasn't president-elect yet even, but each nominee uh, begins to form transition teams uh, just in case so that they're not, you know, caught flat-footed. Uh, so I, David and I both served, David served on Justice Department, I served on Homeland Security transition teams. Um, uh, which were ones that were reviewing the agency uh, at the same time Napolitano and her team were getting picked. I interviewed her with her on January 20th or 19th, the day before 
um, but I did not get through until um, April. Um, and uh, so we were, you know, commuter. David started January 20th and like, you know, all dysfunctional families at the beginning of any administration, we sort of moved the house and the kids down over the course of that spring and both served in the Obama administration for several years. Uh, what, so what was your role at, at DHS? So I was uh, what's called Assistant Secretary for Intergovernmental Affairs, which um, is essentially the, the mirror to the job I had uh, in state government. So I was the access point to the homeland, to the 50 governor's offices, the 250 mm -hmm. major urban areas, um, a lot of it on policy. So I mean, we're a department that um, um, has a lot of, you know, most of our employees are operational people, right? They're people who, um, the TSA, TSA, Coast Guard, yeah. right? Uh, Secret Service. Uh, Customs. But there's obviously, yeah, there's obviously a lot of policies, including immigration policy, but preparedness planning, uh, resiliency, climate change was just beginning to be thought through. Um, and so had a very sort of policy outreach, which I loved because I love working with public safety agencies and so I what like were some of like the key the key policies the key the key policy debates that you were facing at the time? So so at that at that stage a lot of it was immigration, uh, um, a lot of it was so you know and part of that is pacing. So part of that was the White House was clear that they wanted to uh, push healthcare first, immigration was going to wait. How are we going to fix border enforcement? We were you know and and um, try to ch change some aspects to it. For me, a lot of the uh, focus for me was on um, essentially uh, trying to change uh, the dynamic between the department and the states and localities that had gotten somewhat caustic uh, in the post-Hurricane Katrina era. Um, so tried to what, listen what a happened? lot. Like, like how, how did that manifest itself? So like, a lot of it was the federal government would say, hi, we have all this Homeland Security money, we're going to deliver it to states and then tell the states how to spend it. Now, that might make sense if every state were the same and every risk was the same for every state. And so what the department had to learn through essentially, you know, the, the change in administrations was, um, uh, was how do you have, how do you support homeland security efforts in the homeland that create a common baseline, but also respect differences in uh, geography, risk, politics, uh, and all those uh, sorts of issues. So it was a really huge transformation uh, for the department. So much so that um, I mean, you just you don't you don't you don't hear a lot of the fights that you had heard before between governors and the department. In fact, governors tend to be pretty supportive of the department through FEMA and other agencies. Um, you know, but uh, I was surprised how much my role was operational. I think I was not anticipating that. Um, I come in in my first briefing two days later as H1N1, and because I believe every crisis has political elements to it, and I'm dealing with a lot of the politics of it, um, you know, a lot of it was um, um, uh, uh, was policy and planning around real crises, whether it was H1N1, um, uh, later on various, you know, attempted terrorist attacks, for me, major efforts in the BP oil spill, of which you know I ended up having a very elevated role for the White House for, um, and um, and various other you know issues that you wouldn't anticipate, like Haiti. Haiti ended up having a huge homeland consequence because uh, um, there was a big adoption uh, 
debate going on. Remember, a lot of children were very close to being adopted from Haiti. Haiti was very concerned that children not be taken from their country. Um, uh, and the State Department was a huge player in that. Another issue for the department in that regard, and one in which, like, I, I went down with, with Vice President Biden and, and Napolitano down to Florida. Uh, another issue was, uh, you know, the movement of Haitians uh, for medical care into the states. How many, uh, you can't burden a single state. Uh, and so, it, you know, the, 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 the tentacles of the department throughout the U.S. were so varied, uh, uh, and so it was like incredibly energizing, very interesting. No day was the same, uh, but ultimately very exhausting. And in particular, the BP oil spill, where um, I sort of took off my assistant secretary hat and was named um, the director of the National Incident Command, which is so wh the. What does that? Uh, can you can you explain explain that that process and and the, yeah. what was that? Did like President Obama call you up? Did his chief of staff call so, you up? Well, no, no, it was. Um, so I was deployed. I was the only first political person to be deployed down to the Gulf the day after we learned, or the or the day up actually we learned that the blowout preventer was leaking. So remember, in the time frame of the BP oil spill, tonight is the today is the five year anniversary, if you can believe it. Um, uh, uh, you know, 11, guy, 11 guys had died, oil workers had died, but we didn't know there was a spill for several days. So the senior leadership call um, with the White House and Napolitano, myself and others, um, that uh, said that there was a leak. Um, that night, I am asked to go down just to sort of help manage and be the eyes and ears for what was a Coast Guard response um, on that Saturday. And by... Um, by Wednesday or Thursday, the president um, declares it a spill of national significance. This is sort of legal mumbo jumbo, but the the part of it was uh, he named Thad Allen, who was the commandant, the national incident uh, commander of the spill response. It was a way of elevating the spill to let everyone know we were taking it seriously. Thad, I knew very well. Thad calls me and says, I need someone to manage, you know, the 60 or 70 federal agencies that are coming forward, um, and I also need uh, someone to help manage five southern states, all of them with Republican governors. And I'm, you know, in my space, I'm pretty honest about it. I know in national security, like, we're supposed to say that we're nonpartisan and, you know, whatever. It's just, I, I, I get that. But in the homeland, it's very different. There's always going to be a political aspect to every crisis. And, um, and it's not you know, Republicans do this and Democrats do this. It's just, you know, you're going to have to engage the political apparatus. And what in that political instance, aspect of the oil spill surprised you most? Um, I was surprised. You know, God, it's like I have, you know, cold sweats when I think about it. And you have to remember, I'm overseeing or 60 federal agencies in five states. I did 28 plus trips to the Gulf. Um, uh, so there's a lot of yelling because remember it didn't go so well. I think, um, I think the biggest mistake we made as a administration, but also as a sort of a, a way to talk to people. This is a little bit of my theme right now with the podcast. Is we never prepared them for the inevitable oil hitting shore. In other words, the the challenge in homeland security is what's success, right? Is success you know that 
uh, no oil hit shore, well, that's going to be impossible. It's the biggest freaking oil spill ever. And everyone knows how oil and water, you know, form. And it's going to be pretty impossible to get all the oil out. Or, And I wish, you know, we would have had um, told and said from the mountaintops, including with President Obama, said, you know, oil will hit shore and prepared the American public. Because once the oil hit shore, it was very hard for us to get the narrative back that we were doing a lot and that less oil hitting that that less oil was hitting shore because of our tremendous efforts look there's still a debate about how much oil is there but um i'll be you know i'm the first one to say that that coast guard with the help of people like me you know they did save an ocean i mean the, the, the history did not have to unfold that way um and uh and it unfolded in a way that protected uh, the ocean and the industry, nothing's perfect. And so I think for me, that was a real wake up call, like how hard it is to sort of level with people. Not that we were lying. It was just, we weren't setting the barometer of success. I think the, the, the politics of it just got played out, you know, rather, obviously we were leading into the presidential election. We, you know, it was going to start up by the end of that year. And three of those governors were either going to run against Obama or hint that they were going to run Bobby Jindal, Haley Barber, and then Rick Perry eventually gets in. So it was, it was high politics of the utmost order. They were, they were running for president over the oil spill. Um, so we're about out of time, but I, you know, we're, we're on the subject of, elections. I mean, not good, but I mean, I'm, I had fun. <laughs> um, I, I did want to ask you before I let you go about, about your decision to run for governor. Ooh, I um, so. Yeah. Where did that come from? Like, where what what inspired you to to make that leap? I mean, well, it's a pretty I'm, huge risk. It's a big one. Yeah, it was a huge risk, and no regrets. Look, I mean, part of it was uh, I believe in government. I mean, someone like me, and I I believe that government can do lots of good for people, and uh, and the issues, and and engaging people, sort of the role of government. And I've learned that in in really bad times for people. And I've always felt like if you could just take that feeling that people have when their communities are under stress or under threat and bottle it up and then, you know, get them to feel that way about solving education or infrastructure or climate change, uh, the world would be a much better place. Uh, and so um, had talked to a bunch of people and it looked like um, uh, there might be an opening. I had I, my eyes were wide open because uh, we had our sitting attorney general, Martha Copley, whose name was famous or infamous, depending on who you are. Um, and also our state treasurer was running. And so in the end, it was just too difficult for me to maneuver between the two of them. But I'm really proud of what we did. I mean, we talked about climate change and criminal justice reform and infrastructure and issues that I think really do need a forum, especially for states that really do have to be creative about this. And I took on, you know, a female establishment. I'm not, I don't, I don't, you know, there was a big brouhaha about me challenging, um, you know, the woman who was next in line. And I just, I hope that a generation of women is growing up just um, believing that, you know, that we can take on establishments, even if they are, uh, even if they are women and that there's no such thing as a woman's issue. I mean, you started this conversation with you thought the title was um, interesting given the background, but part of this, you know, part of who I am is I think every issue is a woman's issue and women don't need to be confined to talking about 
other women or children or education that, I mean, while important, so is infrastructure and climate change and criminal justice reform. So um, it was great. And we came, you know, close. We have a funny process here, close to getting on the ballot. Uh, but I like to, you know, elections are funny. And uh, um, and uh, and it was uh, a wonderful experience. But as I, I quote my husband, whenever people say, um, would you do it again? David, David is very funny and could not be part of the campaign because by then he had been nominated to the circuit court. So judges are not allowed to do politics, even if it's their wife. He, and at the end of it, he said, um, we're not in debt. Uh, you're not in jail and we're not divorced. Total success. So I thought, okay, that's a good way to think it. about it because they're very hard, but um, it was great. Love it. Uh, well, Juliet, thank you so much for your time. I really look forward to your podcast and thank thanks you. for sharing Yours these, these amazing stories and, and for, you know, teaching, teaching me, teaching us all about the finer points of, of the national security establishment. So thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you to Juliet. Thank you all for listening. And if you have not already done so, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can download the app. It's totally free. And we will see you next time. Bye.